Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. This is Declan Garvey, editor of the Morning Dispatch, and today we're going to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act. After more than a year of negotiations, stops and starts, rebrandings and renamings, President Joe Biden finally signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law this week. While significantly downsized from its original Build Back Better version, Biden's landmark climate and healthcare legislation makes significant changes to our tax code and is being hailed as the biggest federal investment in climate change mitigation efforts in American history. It's also, as this week's guest Scott Lincecum argues, a libertarian nightmare. Scott is the director of general economics at the Cato Institute and the author of the Capitalism Newsletter here at the Dispatch. On today's episode, we talk less about the politics of the bill and more about what he sees as the biggest problems with what's actually in it. From its questionable budget math to its Jekyll and Hyde approach to business investment and its doubling down on green energy subsidies that didn't work out so well a decade ago. Plus, stick around till the end for a conversation about why industrial policy is seemingly the only thing lawmakers in both parties can agree on nowadays. Scott, welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me back. You know, b- before we drill down on kind of some of the specific provisions, I want to take a, a big picture look at the the overall size of the bill. Um, you know, Democrats labeled it the Inflation Reduction Act, um, I think mostly so that Joe Manchin could declare Build Back Better is dead in his, in his press release announcing it. Um, but there's, you know, been plenty of debate over whether it actually will bring down inflation, um, whether it will reduce the deficit that, that the way that they say, um, you know, purely on a, a revenue raised money spent calculation, uh, a couple nonpartisan estimates from the Congressional Budget Office and, and Joint Committee on Taxation have found the legislation would reduce the deficit by about $300 billion over the next decade. Um, that's obviously if the uh, extensions to the Affordable Care Act subsidies are not extended beyond the three years that they currently are in, in this legislation, which is uh, not a, a fair bet per se. What is your thought on all of that? Are those estimates an accurate reflection of, of how you see this legislation playing out over the next 10 years? Uh, not really, no. Um, look, you know, the, unfortunately, we've really gotten to the point where gaming CBO scores is like an official sport in Washington, um, that when you uh, front load some of the spending, but then assume that it's going to continue like the ACA 70, right? So we're going to front load that spending, um, but only for three years. And of course, CBO has to deal with a 10-year budget window, right? So you know that going into it. So uh, then you add a bunch of taxes at the back end, right? So taxes aren't going to kick in. The majority of the taxes aren't going to kick in for a while. So you're just gaming the 10-year window, right? And if you end up extending out the ACA subsidies, if you end up um, assuming that some of the tax increases might not ever get implemented or might cause distortions that people, oh, I don't really like this, um, like for the book tax and or the uh, buybacks tax, um, then all of a sudden your budget uh, estimates change dramatically, right? And everybody in Washington knows this. Um, and it's it's unfortunate because you know the CBO um, is a is a legitimate entity. Uh, they have a, an important job, but you know they they have to do what they're you know what they're uh, told to do in terms of when it comes to these 
budget projections. And everybody in Washington, of course, knows it. And so they they game the whole thing. Um, in that regard, you know, I, that's that one. So that's the budget side. And then on the inflation stuff, I mean, come on. It's uh, it's really ridiculous, uh, particularly, again, since you have front loaded spending and back loaded taxes, it's the taxes that that might uh, mute. Uh, inflation a little bit. None of the quote unquote supply side, which is a distortion of the term anyway, but none of the expansions of supply or energy or whatever are going to come online for for a few years. Um, and so, because of that, if anything, um, in the in the near term, it's going to it'll goose inflation a little bit. But you're not talking about a, a you know this is this is not. The American Rescue Plan. This is not some of these others that are just massive injections of cash into the economy. So, if anything, I mean, you know, a modest increase in inflation, probably, but I mean, modest, right? The the some of the estimates I've seen are, you know, like from the Tax Foundation or whatever. It's like a zero point one percent decrease or increase, or I mean, who cares, right? Again, uh, it's and and quite frankly, uh, it is. Uh, Orwellian, uh, I forget what was that John Carl who said that uh, yesterday. Where it is, and I'm I hate that I have to call this thing the Inflation Reduction Act when I talk about it. I I prefer IRA. I'm just going to call it the IRA. I don't care that there's another IRA out there um, because I refuse to play this idiotic game of. I mean, you know, what's next? We're going to call things the you know Rainbows and Puppies Act, um, and it's you know it's just more. Washington nonsense. It usually at least it spells out something in a in a catchy acronym. The uh, you know we didn't get that this True. time around, so uh, we got that going right. for us. Like like Mike Lee's Formula Act, my favorite maybe ever. That that they spelled out formula by using is the infant. This was the infant formula bill. Uh, Little Americans was at the end <laughs> to get the LA. I mean, really brilliant. Brilliant stuff, whoever came up with that. Yes. I, I was originally planning to save the dessert of the conversation, the, the taxes aspect of this bill till the end. But I think since, you know, you touched on a lot of it there, we can kind of move that up towards the front. Obviously, in, in these uh, estimates that that maybe I should stop citing because uh, they're they're not as uh, as authoritative as, as you might assume, they basically point to um, new taxes raising about uh, $500 some billion dollars over the next 10 years, something like that. And then an additional $200 billion in health savings from allowing um, Medicare to negotiate drug prices and institute uh, some price caps on, on specific drugs. The biggest one of those taxes is a new 15% minimum tax on corporate uh, alternative minimum tax. Um, you know, this is something that it, it kind of evolved out of a, a talking point from the Democratic primary that the biggest companies in the in the United States don't pay any taxes, that they uh, that their tax bill is literally zero and that, you know, we need to do something to make sure that the Amazons and the Apples of the world are paying their fair share. Is that a fair characterization of, you know, the w w would Tim Cook say that Apple pays no taxes? Uh, no, of course not. Um, the, so this so there's there's two. Uh, bits of idiocy in uh, this whole book tax thing. Um, the first is the the rhetorical stuff about companies paying no taxes um, is mostly nonsense. And it's mostly nonsense for two reasons. One, because um, some of the reason why companies occasionally pay no taxes, uh, particularly in the tech sector, is because they actually made 
uh, no profits, right? I mean, particularly if you look at some of the earlier years of companies like Amazon and others, um, these were they were they were actually losing money for years. And when you lose money, guess what? You don't pay taxes. This isn't surprising. Um, and then uh, the law allows you to carry forward these losses through subsequent tax years. Because if you if you lose you know uh, a trillion one year and then make a billion the next year, uh, the law lets you you know spread out that trillion dollar loss over a while. So again, that's just the law, and that and then that gets to the second part of this nonsense um, about this. That the main reason why American companies don't pay any tax is not any sort of nefarious schemes or anything like that. Uh, it's not about tax havens or rest. Those certainly there are you know little things that people companies do with intellectual property in in Ireland and the rest. But the the biggest reason is because these companies are uh, acting within the law to uh, minimize their tax burdens um, through things like uh, R and D investments, tax credits, and other so tax things that are that Congress has put in the law to encourage these types of business activities, capital expenditures, research and development, uh, green energy usage, you name it, uh, the companies then do the things Congress wants them to do, thus lowering their tax liability, and then Congress screams at them for having little to no tax liability. It, that is, I mean, it is. these are the types of things that it makes it difficult to be uh, a policy wonk at times because it is such... A stupid argument. Um, this is they are basically doing what Congress wanted them to do. And and Congress, of course, will take credit when business investment goes up, when usage of solar panels or whatever Congress has incentivized through the tax code had goes up, they will say, aha, we did it. We encouraged solar panel usage or whatever. And then in the very next breath, they will say, oh, these darn multinational corporations didn't pay any tax. I mean, it's just, it's, it's again, makes you want to throw your computer out the window sometimes. Um, if, again, you're not wholly in politics, if you're like me and you're a dork who just wants to write about policy and, and not deal with um, that type of stuff. Um, so, so that's the, so, so first, first big reason is, is a lot of that rhetoric, rhetorical stuff is nonsense. Okay. But the second big reason is that book tax is not what matters when it comes to paying tax, right? So uh, the, the book or book income, excuse me, um, book income is what they report to shareholders. And it's just a different system. It, the, the, and it doesn't include, again, some of the tax credits and other stuff under the law that determines your actual IRS tax liability. Um, this, again, has nothing to do with um, any sort of nefarious tax avoidance. It is simply that you have two different systems for determining what is income, right? Now, the the big problem, I think, with the book income idea, quite frankly, is that book income is a very malleable thing too, right? We talk about taxable income being malleable. You know, you can maybe classify certain things as R&D so that you get extra tax credits or whatever. Well, uh, at least Congress has a say in all of that. And when it comes to book income, there's an unelected board of accountants in, I think, Delaware that determines what constitutes book income or not. So all of a sudden, um, we are essentially 
empowering a small cadre of pencil pushers uh, in, in the private sector to determine very, very consequential things about, about book income. Because again, the tax, the, the new law says that if you make over a, a billion dollars in profit, you're going to pay either um, the, you know, the, the, the real, the, the normal tax system, or you're, you're going to pay on your book income, which again, book income, minimum book income, 15% on, uh, determined by these accountants in, in Delaware. Um, so that just opens itself up to all sorts of, of gaming, like I said. But I think the other big thing that people haven't really thought about, and another reason why I think a lot of these projections are stupid, um, is the uncertainty involved. Um, I mean, if you're a company, you really don't know at the beginning of the year whether at the end of the year you're going to have book income up or uh, taxable legal income, whatever we want to call it down, who knows, right? It's going to depend on a lot of factors that are way outside of your control. And that type of uncertainty um, could very well be muting economic activity. So not only are you going to encourage all sorts of gaming, but you're going to be injecting more uncertainty in the U.S. economy. Uncertainty tends to depress investment and whatever. Um, so why is this increasing? Why is this a, a bigger problem for the book tax? Well, if you look at the JCT's score of, of the book tax, uh, you see that the industry that is affected the most is manufacturing. So, the, the, sorry, the sector that's, uh, and particularly chemical manufacturing, but um, all manufacturing. So, we want to encourage investment in manufacturing. We, we, uh, the other, another big area that gets hit is uh, real estate, um, which, so, which again, we want to encourage construction, um, housing, whatever, and by. Uh, essentially making those the industries that are like the most uncertain when it comes to this new business tax, you could be potentially depressing investment um, in those sectors. So that, again, makes makes no sense. Um, and I, I forget who it was on Twitter, uh, but basically said very smartly, I think, um, we did this a long time ago. It was stupid. We moved away from it. Now we're back and we're probably going to move away from it again in a, in a, a few years. Um, and quite frankly, that's one of the big problems with economic policy overall is that it seems to change every four years with whoever's in, in power in Washington. Um, and again, certainly that's going to have a, a depressing effect on economic activity. Right. Right. And it's not, as we can see, it's, it's, you know, it's not going to be just these businesses that are, that are paying the price for this. It, I think you, you talk about some of this, um, kind of, uh, split between, you know, on the one hand, we want to increase taxes on, on these businesses. And, and in effect, you're taking away the tax credits that Congress has previously um, enacted to to and except, of course, they carved out the news tax credit. So they the semiconductor tax credits don't get touched and a couple other tax credits, which is it's just all, you know, string pulling and economic planning from Washington. I mean, you know, and again, it makes libertarians like me, it makes my skin crawl. Um, but, you know, look, the only way you can uh, uh, push companies to do what you want is to have certain tax burdens and then exceptions to those burdens and the rest. And that's just, you know, kind of classic Washington playbook. Um, the The other thing I would I would just add is that um, so that, I mean, are we going to, we're going to talk about the dividends tax next or, or yeah, or the, uh, buyback, buyback, yeah. excuse me, buybacks. Yeah. Buybacks tax. Uh, I mean, that's the other, I mean, I think that, so the, the book one is, is foolish. The, um, buyback one is, is just absolutely moronic. Um, 
and, and but but it's ba- they kind of in a way, same way. Um, you know, first is that there's this weird idea in Washington, partif- particularly among left wing Washington, but also among populists on the right, that buybacks somehow subtract from business investment. So you've heard, for example, that if Abbott Laboratories, the infant formula maker, hadn't uh, initiated stock buybacks, it would have, you know, uh, kept up its equipment and not, um, you know, ha- had this infant formula uh, shut down and FDA inspection and the rest. But that's, I mean, anybody who understands corporate finance knows that that's absolutely nonsensical. Um, that companies engage in buybacks for all sorts of reasons, um, and more importantly, that. Uh, there is no reason why a buyback uh, must necessarily subtract from capital expenditures because you can simply finance capital expenditures through all sorts of other means. Uh, Maybe you just have cash on hand. Companies are sitting on tons of cash. Maybe you want to um, take out debt right? Um, but maybe because interest rates are at zero like they were. There are all sorts of ways you can you can finance capital expenditures. The, the other end, studies have shown that there is basically no connection, no correlation between uh, stock buybacks and capital expenditures. And in fact, um, uh, in 2021, we had a ton of buybacks. Uh, everybody's screaming at buybacks, but we also had a lot of capital expenditures at the same time. Um, and uh, by many of the exact same companies. So uh, there's no reason that that this is uh, a um, something that must be disciplined. Um, and again, um, there, there's a potential for this to, to create all sorts of distortions because um, buybacks actually can do some important things, um, you know, signaling the availability of new investments in the industry or whatever. Um, and so this is just going to simply uh, distort those decisions. It, it makes makes not doesn't make a lot of sense. And it's not going to. The other thing is, it's not going to. I mean, the good news I should say is, it's not going to not going to raise much money or or have much of an economic effect because it's um uh it's one percent, not a game changer. That kind of thing. If it stays at one percent, yes, um, eventually. Well, yep. well, yeah. Well, that is that is true, and and it is the camel's nose, right? I mean, once we've started down this road, what are we going to? Um, uh, do next. But like any good libertarian, I'm eagerly awaiting the ways that corporations and their crack legal and accounting teams just get around all this, right? Because let's face it, there are always loopholes, there are always creative ways to to uh, do this that won't uh, run afoul of the feds. I'm sure that several of the congressional staffers that wrote this law are going to cash out soon and go to big five accounting firms or giant corporations, and they'll be figuring this out soon enough because let's face it, that's what they always do. Why would anybody ever be a libertarian? Uh, um, so, yeah, well, you, I mean, you te- we, oh. we have, we throw great parties and let's face it, um, being uh, endlessly disappointed uh, means really you're never disappointed, right? It's always, I mean, I, I I expect this tort type of stupidity. So you, you you teed it up a little bit there with you know companies are going to be able to find the right accountants and 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 find ways to minimize the the uh, economic damage, so to speak that that this will will have on their on their ultimate tax burden. Will that get harder with the you know one hundred and twenty some billion dollars that 
is included in this bill for uh, additional IRS funding, you know, hiring up to, I believe I saw 90,000 or so new IRS agents. Um, you know, there's there's this idea out there that, you know, for every $1 spent on IRS enforcement because of a either real or imagined tax gap, um, there will be more revenue coming in uh, because there's just so many tax cheats out there that are not paying their fair share. And if we only had more resources, we would be able to find them. What say you? It's a great theory, um, but it does run into some some reality problems. Um, the first, uh, well, first, I, let's note, um, I don't have any problem, even as a uh, taxationist theft libertarian, uh, giving the IRS basic resources like new computers and whatever, right? Um, you know, there have been some story, stories floating around, um, you know, that, and I think that are totally valid about um, the IRS was still using like computers from the 60s and and still using like paper, you know, actual paper, which, I mean, who uses actual paper for stuff? Um, and, you know, so, so that kind of stuff, um, I don't have a problem with. Um, I don't, also don't have a problem with boosting, and, and there's some money uh, earmarked for, for particularly for that, for systems upgrades. Um, I also don't have a problem with um, the IRS having more for customer service, right? Uh, customer service, uh, let's face it, at the IRS could, could stand a, a little, little improvement, right? Uh, but the problem, the problem is that more than half of the money goes to enforcement, right? And there are no guardrails on how that enforcement is going to occur. Um, everybody wants to talk about, ah, oh, we're going to go after the rich, we're going to go after um, evil corporations and all that kind of stuff. But the reality is that uh, going after the rich and evil corporations is really, really hard. So, uh, and when the IRS has faced challenges in the past with, with um, enforcement, and um, achieving the type of return on Congress's investment that Congress demands, well, what has the IRS done? It has actually gone after poor and middle-class people who don't have armies of lawyers to defend themselves, who um, really, you know, basically are, are um, uh, uh, up the creek um, when the IRS calls, right? So without any sort of guardrails, without any sort of direction there, I think you can easily envision a scenario where um, the IRS starts out very well-intentioned. We're going to hire all these tax cops and go after all these rich people and stuff. And then after a few years of endless litigation by teams of um, very smart lawyers and accountants at companies and, and hired by you know, the richest people in, in, in the world, the IRS is going to go, man, this is really hard. And we're not really winning a lot. We're just stuck in court. Uh, and then Congress is going to come calling. They're going to haul the head of the IRS in the, in the, you know, to a, some sort of show trial deal in, in D.C. And they're going to say, where is, where is this enforcement revenue we were expecting? And then they're going to say, OK, well, let's, um, how, how can we improve our return? And then they're going to go after the poor and middle class again. Um, so that's, I think, the concern. It's not, it's not that the IRS is like um, biased against the poor or anything like that. It's just human nature, right? That, that they have their own personal incentives and pressures, particularly after a few years of lackluster enforcement and lackluster returns. And human nature is going to say, pick the low-hanging fruit, particularly uh, when you're a bureaucrat. Uh, and so that I, I think that's your more likely scenario. And again, it comes from the lack of any sort of 
um, uh, procedural checks on what the IRS can and can't do with this new money. So give them new computers, but um, you know I don't think uh, eighty thousand new enforcement agents, which is admittedly over a, a window of time. It's not like tomorrow. Um, that's I don't think that's going to be the best use of um, of my money. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. To kind of transition this conversation a little bit from. We talked about all this new money that the government's going to have at its disposal. Uh, how are they going to spend it? So <laughs> we've got, uh, you know, the initial about $100 billion going towards what we talked about earlier, the extension of um, Affordable Care Act subsidies. Again, for three years, it will probably be extended again in three years um, and, and in perpetuity, um, as, as well as some uh, Medicare reforms and, and additional subsidies there want to talk uh, a little bit more and, and focus a little bit more on what uh, this bill does for energy and climate and tax credits and subsidies. At, you know, it's being hailed and it possibly accurately as the biggest federal climate change um, piece of legislation in, in terms of money, not necessarily in terms of impact. But, um, you know, we've got just ticking through $37 billion in clean manufacturing tax credits, $160 billion in clean electricity tax credits, conservation, rural development, forestry, $35 billion, goes on and on and on. Is this the best way? You know, obviously, I think there's not necessarily anything wrong with, you know, promoting transitions to cleaner uh, energy towards fossil fuels, uh, away from fossil fuels, it has to be done at the right pace, has to be, um, you know, balanced with a, a, a global scale and, and a global effort here. Um, but is this the right way to go about it in, in your view? Oh no! It's a horrible way to go about. It. Every question that I have is just Scott. Is this? Is this? Is there anything good about this bill? It's terrible. <laughs> well, look. I mean, I, I, uh, unfortunately, um, even the stuff that I could be generally on board with, they screwed it up. Um, so let's let's take um, as a starting point. Um, it's it's really important to acknowledge that private investment and private demand for green energy and green clean technologies, whether it's electric cars or batteries or solar panels and windmills or whatever, um, has been skyrocketing over the last couple of years. Uh, Wall Street Journal had an article uh, just a month and a half ago, I don't know, whatever, people who read my newsletter, I actually, I linked to it in there in my piece last week, not this week's piece, but the piece uh, last week, so on, on the 10th, I think. Um, that that there is a massive demand right now for green and clean energy. Um, the problems in the United States economy right now are far more on the supply side of uh, energy production. Um, you know, we have all sorts of stupid supply side restrictions on the deployment of clean energy technologies. Um, we have tariffs on solar panels. We have the Jones Act, of course. I, I get points for always. I have to mention the Jones Act every every podcast I do, sorry. Um, uh, that restricts uh, the deployment of wind 
uh, offshore wind facilities. We have, of course, tons of environmental regulations um, and environmental permitting uh, rules that delay or thwart, uh, you know, uh, solar panel arrays um, or, um, you know, all sorts of other clean geothermal, um, even hydroelectricity stuff. Um, so we have a lot of supply side stuff. And a guy over at R Street uh, did, just wrote a great piece uh, about a week ago that said that those supply side things are just even discrete supply side reforms would provide more bang for the buck. Um, and of course, zero bucks. It's not taxpayer dollars here um, than the entire clean energy chapter of the IRA. So, so that's the first the first problem. And then the second is that the IRA um, just simply goes after the same demand stuff that we already, like I said, demand is fine. We have tons of demand. It's just boosting, it might boost demand a little more. The the however, there's two big problems with that. One is that there's just as much a risk of crowding out private investment in these very same sectors instead of encouraging even more investment. So once the government gets involved, for example, it starts picking winners and losers. Um, you know, I, I hate industrial policy. I've written a ton about this. But, you know, one of the problems with industrial policy is that um, the folks that end up winning the subsidies might not actually be the biggest and best and most innovative. Uh, private investors might say, uh, you know what, the government's going to handle this investment, so I'm going to go invest in something else that the government isn't involved in, or I just, this is too uncertain because the government's involved, not going to do it, right? So, um, so there's a chance that it simply crowds out. Um, and I think a, a, if you look at the history of U.S. green energy subsidies, because we don't have to go back very far, go back to the Obama stimulus, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act uh, in 2009, uh, there's a lot of evidence that in a lot of sectors, uh, government involvement, again, in renewable energies, clean energies, actually crowded out uh, investments, didn't actually boost them above. And let's face it, here we are 10 years later saying that there's a big problem. We have it. We don't have enough. You know, we're losing the clean energy raise. I mean, we just did this uh, a decade ago. Um, you know, President Obama said he was going to make the oceans recede and do all that sort of nonsense um, because of, the, of that stimulus bill. And, and we're back just now bigger, badder, and better than ever. Um, so that's that's the first problem um, with, with the demand side subsidies. Uh, the second problem, though, and I think the bigger problem, is that Congress, in typical Congress fashion, has attached all sorts of strings to these subsidies. Um, most notably, there is a boatload of protectionism. Um, your car batteries have to be made in America. Your uh, electric vehicles have to be assembled in North America. Your uh, advanced manufacturing tax credits uh, have to have some American-made content. There is, of course, good old you know, fashion labor and Davis-Bacon prevailing wage restrictions and all sorts of stuff that will inevitably increase costs. So you are going to get less bang for our investment buck, because if these were the cheapest available sources, well, we'd be using them already. There'd be no need for restrictions. Um, but the other thing is that they're just going to mire things in paperwork, bureaucracy, and the rest. And again, we did a lot of this in the Obama stimulus, and we had Buy American restrictions and stuff, but these are, these are actually much worse than last time around. Um, and it ended up delaying projects and it ended up um, really undermining the efficacy of these um, demand side subsidies. So 
what's a better approach? Well, there's two things. One is, you know, we, like I said, we have those supply side regulatory reforms. That's a place to start. Um, two is we could do simple things like a carbon tax, right? To the extent that we want to, um, ta- you know, uh, account for the externalities that are caused by carbon emissions and fossil fuel production. Um, well, economists will tell you the easiest thing to do is tax that. Now, um, that does raise some implementation concerns, but that's that's um, easier uh, or at least more efficient more, and would be far better at, at getting capital to flow where capital needed to flow. Um, but the, the last thing is, if we want to do consumer subsidies, just do consumer subsidies. Stop attaching any strings to them, right? You know, if you want to encourage people to buy EVs or use solar panels, just give them a tax credit and be done with it. Um, don't give them a tax credit for solar panels that just happen to be made by somebody in Ohio or whatever. I mean, it's because probably, you know, it's always got to be Ohio. Uh, and, and, you know, you don't, it, because once you start adding all those strings, um, you end up uh, not raising costs, discouraging deployment and the rest, which is exactly what you want to do, right? And so, you know, as I wrote last week, Congress really revealed its priorities um, when it attached all of these protectionist measures, which are just a big sop to big labor and and certain domestic companies, um, and are going to inevitably uh, restrict the deployment of these clean energies, which, of course, is such a joke. I mean, if climate change is the existential crisis of our lifetimes, um, you know, maybe we don't have to pad labor unions' bottom line for once. Maybe we could actually, you know, just get get the job done here. Um, so, so I think that overall, um, you know, again, uh, I I'm somewhat um, morbidly fascinated to watch this all play out because uh, my guess is that uh, once again we're gonna we're gonna see a, a bunch of a bunch of problems with that. And I and I don't even have to mention the fact that you know Europe and Korea and others who should be our allies in this, right? We are all kumbaya global partners. Don't even worry about China. China, okay, China's terrible. Whatever. Um, all of these other countries that are excluded from all of these new renewable energy subsidies um, uh, are already threatening to retaliate, to file WTO cases, or to in, implement their own protectionist measures that's, again, just going to restrict and further distort the, the market. If this is a global problem, right, we need global solutions. Uh, and the last thing we want to do is, um, you know, piss off the Europeans um, just because, again, we're trying to placate domestic constituents. Right. And especially if you look at, if you view, as I think is the correct way to view this, climate change and, and um, you know, carbon emissions as a global problem, like the United States bringing its carbon emissions down 30 percent by itself would not do anywhere near close to what a lot of the um, scientists are saying is is necessary on this on this front. Then you need these technologies to be as cheap and affordable and available as possible worldwide, not just in the United States. And so, you know, what yeah, and- what will these subsidies do? I mean, are these companies going to be incentivized to make costs as low as possible for people in Africa and people in Southeast Asia to, you know, adopt these technologies to bring them into everyday use in these countries where that would make a much bigger difference than the, than it would here. Right. Yeah, and and in fact, you don't have to take my crazy libertarian word for all of this. The fact is that there was a guy named Barack Obama 
whose administration actually tried to negotiate what was called the Environmental Goods Agreement that was going to be a global agreement to lower tariffs and other trade restrictions on the deployment of clean energy technologies um, with exactly the idea, as you discussed, that we need to make the consumption of clean energy products as cheap as possible. And we want to encourage the production of those clean energy products anywhere we can particularly because we don't know who's going to come up with the next big, great thing when it comes to clean energy development. Uh, and we don't want to discourage companies abroad, whether they're in Africa or Asia or wherever, from coming up with those technologies and developing those to service the U.S. market and their own markets. So, oh, look, Obama wasn't perfect. He imposed stupid tariffs on solar panels. But uh, at the same time, his USTR was far, far better and smarter about tackling the global problem of climate change by trying to eliminate supply side restrictions on, again, the global deployment. Unfortunately, today, Biden's USTR is very much not uh, of that mold. Uh, and uh, quite frankly, has been extremely depressing when it comes to essentially championing the, the industrial policy and protectionism that's embedded in the IRA and then in the chips, uh, the, the semiconductor bill as well. Right. And I, I think we, we might have buried the lead here a little bit. I, am I right that there are currently zero or, or next to zero electric vehicles on the market that uh, in the United States that will qualify for these subsidies because almost all of them use batteries that are produced elsewhere? Yeah, and I think that's the most egregious example, right? That they put so many restrictions on the EV tax credits that no cars currently qualify. And the hope in Washington, and I, it's so hilarious, the hope is that K Street, the lobbyists and the corporations will somehow convince the executive branch to water down these restrictions via regulations um, because, of course, the law has to be implemented via regulations um, that will thus then magically make EVs start to qualify. Right. And then the long term plan is that someday uh, the EVs will be made in America and the batteries will be made here and then they'll all qualify. But that, again, that totally belies the idea that climate change is an urgent threat demanding immediate attention. If you're saying, no, it's fine in five years the EVs will qualify. Well, look, I thought this was an urgent problem, right? No, it's fine. We can we can wait five years if, you know, again, we're uh, giving uh, some job to some dude in, in the industrial Midwest or where, West Virginia or whatever. Um, never mind, right, that there are 850,000 job openings in the U.S. manufacturing sector right now. Never mind that unemployment is at 3.5%. Unemployment in the tech sector is at 1.5%. I mean, we are not... It's like the hottest labor market ever, and we're still like obsessed with with like manufacturing jobs for some reason. It's um, people's priors like never change. Yeah. Well, I I want to move on from from these subsidies just because I think the the, the vein and the top of your forehead is going to pop if we <laughs> if we spend too much more time on them. But just kind of zooming out a little bit to uh, you know you mentioned it there that this is kind of a recurring theme in the Biden administration thus far you know, with the the CHIPS Act and with, with this legislation, these subsidies, things that were in the American Rescue Plan, kind of this more supply side subsidies and, and kind of incentives from, from the federal government. I'm not entirely convinced that if Republicans retake Congress in 2022, the White House in 2024, that we're not going to see a similar version of the same thing here. You know, it won't necessarily be propping up solar panels and, and electric vehicles, but 
different industries, whether it be, you know, coal or agriculture, things like that. For sure. You know, why is it that both parties seem to be coming to an increasing consensus around industrial policy and, and using the federal government to to really change how these industries operate? Um, so I think there's there's three big reasons. Um, reason number one is Donald Trump um, really kind of changed the calculus on Republicans views on not just trade and immigration, but on markets generally. Um, Trump was very much an interventionist. He wanted to cajole companies to make stuff in America. He was very much into into doing that, and and they they also they liked industrial policy. So that I think warmed Republicans up who had been traditionally um, against that type of interventionism, uh, mostly unless it's in the farm sector, right? Then then you know they're fine with it. But in the industrial sector, right, they were they were against that type of stuff. Now all of a sudden, eh, you know, it's fine. Um, and then the Trumpier ones, of course, embrace it embrace it fully. Two uh, is China, right? Um, China, 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 China. Um, everybody in Washington has convinced themselves that China is an existential threat and that China's greatness has been derived from massive industrial subsidies. Now, again, this is a, a classic case of people's uh, people not updating their priors. Um, you know, maybe you could make the argument that China was some sort of an unstoppable industrial juggernaut a few years ago. Um, today, uh, China's flaws are are quite manifest, right? Um, zero COVID, demographics, productivity. Uh, I again, I wrote a whole newsletter on this. Everybody out there, feel free to Google it. Um, and you, I go through the list, right? There's a ton of different things that that um, undermine the idea that we need to abandon the American system um, to uh, to fight China. But it doesn't matter. Um, in D.C., everybody's convinced on the left and the right that that we have to do this. That China subsidizes. So must we. Um, and regardless of of how much I scream on the internet, nobody listens to me on that. Um, uh, and then the third big reason is the pandemic, right? So uh, the pandemic inevitably, as I've written a million times, uh, screwed with supply chains, made people very insecure. Um, Americans don't like empty store shelves, and they don't really ask questions about how the store shelves got empty. Um, politicians uh, see... Uh, a, uh, a, a see that and and want to offer solutions and uh, uh, the reason libertarians aren't in power is that uh, hey it'll be fine is not a solution right um, no matter how many times I say actually guys the supply chains adapted pretty darn quickly um, and actually private industry and investment in the United States did pretty well actually we have tons of industrial capacity here that we redeployed to make you know vaccines and hand sanitizer and other things. Nobody, nobody wants to hear that, right? They want to hear, where's our plan? Where's our plan to fix this, right? And, oh, it just so happens to dovetail with the, you know, the Trumpian stuff I mentioned before and the China stuff before. And so you have all these folks that think we have to su solve supply chain stuff via new industrial policy and protectionism. Uh, and, and, you know, like I said, it serves political ends, it serves geopolitical ends. Um, and so it's a, it's just crack for politicians, right? They are um, so attracted to these ideas right now. And quite frankly, I, you know, a lot of people in Washington who are otherwise uh, quite smart and uh, level-headed have been seduced by this stuff too. I mean, I, I get emails all the time from, from, from like, you know, think tanks and stuff that are all of a sudden they're, they're, it's like they're speaking an alien language. Um, and it's, it's, uh, surprising. Um, so, so I, but I think you combine those three factors and it really creates this perfect storm for this type of, of stuff. 
Um, and no matter, no amount of rational thought and facts and whatever is going to change it. I mean, you know, you would think after the baby formula crisis, which of course was a product that was almost entirely made in the United States, 98% of all consumption in the United States was domestic production, domestically produced infant formula. We had tariff walls, we had government contracts, we had onerous regulations, we had everything that industrial policy fetishists love everything. Um, and a single factory closure collapsed the market. It still collapsed. I mean, it's like six months later, and we're still suffering from empty store shelves. President Biden's airlifting German baby formula in on C-130s. Um, Congress is enacting emergency legislation to lift tariffs. And yet, it's like that happened in a vacuum. And I mean, it, nobody, they're like, okay, we're going to lift tariffs on baby formula. And oh, by the way, now we need every domestic, se every semiconductor to be made in America. And you, you again, as a, as a sane, somewhat sane libertarian, I'm staring at this just like, I don't, I don't understand. Why can't you, the left hand talk to the right hand? But look, that's, that's Washington for you. Would you support industrial policy to subsidize the Texas Rangers signing some more starting pitching? Yes, for sure. 100%. Uh, look, national security is a viable and valid exception to uh, free market principles. And there is no team that more represents the United States of America than, than the great Texas Rangers. In the, uh, in the green room, we were talking about the Scots team uh, just fired their general manager and their, their manager and uh, are going through it a bit right now. But, you know, the Cowboys, are, football season's coming up. You're going to be all right. Yeah, but I'm not. I'm not much of a Cowboys fan. I. I mean, I. I. I root for them out of knee-jerk loyalty because I grew up in Dallas, right? Um, but I generally, I'm pretty numb to their failures. Um, my my Rangers fandom is far deeper. Um, and to the audience, look, I mean, I do have an excuse for being a bit of a psycho on this. You know, having the Rangers be a a single out away from their first World Series. Um, and having watched that in my living room, I mean, I still, it's like burned into my brain. I can't hear the words Nellie Cruz without starting to go into convulsions. Um, it's not my fault. I mean, this is a perfectly legitimate medically diagnosed condition. And on that note, Scott, thank you so much for joining us uh, and enlightening us to the Inflation Reduction Act and, and why it's a libertarian nightmare. My pleasure. Anytime. <laughs> Take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but 
I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turn into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. 